Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We're stepping into a new series right now, and uh, we invested, Grace and I, four weeks on what is salvation and why do we need to be saved? What is salvation and why do we need to be saved? Now, if you've not heard those, I I need to be very straight here. If you have not heard those, we're going to urge you very strongly to go and listen to them. If you haven't downloaded our app, uh, you should, because it will allow you to be able to access all of those very quickly and easily. Uh, So consider that. It is important. We cannot go back over all of the things that we just spent four weeks talking about uh, now as we enter into this new, uh, really it's a sub-series. And so we're doing a spinoff, and it's a spinoff of that series on by looking at various examples of organizations or religious groups that would claim to preach a gospel, claim to preach good news that supposedly saves in some way, but in, actu- in actuality, it only damns the soul. Now, there are many opinions out there, and it's important that we be able to say without any hesitation in our own mind that what the Bible says is the way to be saved from God's wrath due to our sin, and that is truly the only way to be saved. In fact, I would argue that if a man or woman in this room is not yet convinced of that, then you are not yet capable of calling yourself an actual Christian. There is but one way to find life. In fact, the Apostle Peter said it so simply over 2,000 years ago when he uttered these words, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. The name of Christ, the way of Christ, is the only way that you will ever find salvation from the wrath of God. But what do we do then with those who come and claim that there is another way or a clearer way to be saved? What this small series is designed to do is simply take the four points that we taught and in that, what you will see is how we apply those four points in the last four weeks that we preach to these groups. In other words, what we gave you there when we talked about the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings is we gave you all that you really need to be able to engage someone. When you're talking to somebody about salvation, when you're talking about the Christian faith, the first thing you need to ask them is what do they see is the problem? And then after you address that, you need to ask them what do they think needs to be or is the solution? What is the way? And then as you hear what they call the solution, then you're calling them to consider what, is a, what are they responsible or called by God then to do? That's the sermon I actually preached up at Matt's church uh, just a, a short time ago, the commands to repent and to believe the gospel. And then finally, out of all of that, what are the blessings that flow from being saved? So all we're trying to do is show you how four major groups that you and I are aware of teach a gospel that actually damns the soul, even though they'll call it oftentimes a gospel. They offer no real hope for life now, and they certainly offer no hope after you die. So what are the four groups? Well, you can figure the first one. They are the Roman Catholic Church, Islam, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons, though they hate that, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And all we're going to do over the next few weeks 
is simply take the four points right up there, and we're going to say, if that is what the Scripture says, that's not just theologians talking about theology. This is what the Scripture says, and that's why we spent the time looking at the Scripture. We can then lay them over the beliefs of these various groups and see if they come out the same. And what you're going to actually see and in the end of each one of these is that every one of these groups ultimately fail in one or more of those categories. Either mankind is not really that sinful or salvation is not found only, and that's the key word, only in and through Jesus Christ by grace, or salvation is not received only by turning to God in faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And then what follows after that is once they've talked about their, net, their concept of salvation, invariably the blessings attached to that salvation they claim is something different than what the Scripture promises to all who believe. Now, I already have, I, my plan was to do this in four weeks, but I, I, was, I took upon myself the Roman Catholic Church, and I realized there's just simply no way I can do it sufficiently in one week. So I told Grace I'm preaching two weeks, and then we'll go off into the other ones. Uh, who knows, we'll go be here for four months. Um, but my plan is to do it in two weeks. So what we want to look at today is the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics represent almost 18% of the world's population meaning over a billion adherents to one degree or another. It's an organization that is in constant motion. In other words, what I mean by that is what you call the Catholic Church today is not the Catholic Church of 1500 A.D. And what the Catholic Church was in 1500 A.D. is not what the Catholic Church was in 400 A.D. And oftentimes we don't understand that, and so we, we end up making the Catholic Church guilty of certain things that are not historically accurate nor true, and therefore unfair. You need to understand that at all times the Roman Catholic Church is, in a sense, evolving. Along with that, because the Roman Catholic Church has grown and changed and evolved over these many, many years you will find aspects of the Roman Catholic Church that sound very good. They would hold to many things that we would call right, good, and orthodox. And that's why there's oftentimes is so much confusion that arises with this. Now, I wager a bet that every single person in this room came out of the Catholic Church or has friends or family in the Catholic Church. Maybe I've got a few here that aren't, but we live in Kenosha. And very likely, you have somebody that you know who's a Catholic, or you yourself came from a Catholic church or a Catholic background, or perhaps you even now would call yourself a Catholic. It is a dominating influence in their society, much like Islam is the dominating influence in the Middle East. For those of you who were raised in the Catholic Church, it is often, or most likely, that you all have a very diverse sense of what you believe. I have been doing this long enough and talked to enough people who have either currently a Catholic or came out of Catholicism to know that every time I speak to one, that what they say is not what the other Catholic said, or this Catholic down there and this creates a lot of confusion as well. Many a person will say, well, I am a Catholic, but I don't believe like the Catholic Church says over here. I will just be blunt with you, then you're not a Catholic. That doesn't make you a Christian, but it is impossible for you to be actually a Catholic and reject what the Catholic Church teaches because the Catholic Church does not allow for alternate understandings. And so what I want to do is to show you what a Catholic believes. Not because you, I've talked to Joe on a bar stool down at the local bar, but because I've sat there and spent far more time in the Catholic catechism, which is their official doctrine, than I cared to. 
And out of that, I want to unpack for you what does the Catholic Church actually believe and teach and why is it that I am so mean as to say that it is a gospel that damns the soul? So what I want to show you today and next week is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and believes about the problem of sin and the solution. Now, there's all sorts of things I could go down the road on and, and deal with. One of the things Grace and I talked about is to be careful that we don't get into these little cul-de-sacs of theology that might be interesting but of, is of no help. One of the common things that you'll find if you talk to somebody in the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that they'll, they'll want to talk to you about Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross. It was a torture stake. And then you get all, oh, and next thing you know, all you're doing is talking about was it a cross uh, or was it a torture stake? Who cares? Why'd he die? What was accomplished when he died? Who was it that died? What, do, do you see the difference? I don't care about all of the other things. I, I, I can talk about them. We can deal with those. And in some way, we might make a passing comment. But if you're hoping that this will be the expose of the dirty underbelly or something like that, no. What we want to look at is, do they understand the problem, which is sin and the wrath of God? And do they understand the solution, which is Jesus Christ and only Christ? So today, we're going to deal with sin and a little bit of the solution. And next week, I hopefully will address the solution more fully. Here's my fear. My fear is that you'll be bored uh, because I'm going to be dealing with some complex points, and so my job is to make them understandable um, and interesting, but also one where I can engage you at the level of what does the Scripture say. So we deal with the problem. Let me bring you again up to speed. Now, there are many problems with the teaching and practice of the Catholic Church. But what I want you to understand is what are the sorts of questions you need to go to a Catholic and ask? Just cut through all of the other stuff, and you need to be able to say to your mom, Ma, what do you think is a problem? What do you think is a problem? And begin to probe and press. Ma, what do you think God gave us a solution? It's that simple. Not one of you is incapable of doing this. Not if you sat and listened to those four sermons and took the most basic of notes on the inside of your Bible like we encouraged you to. Well, according to the Bible, we know about the problem. The problem is first, original sin, the fact that Adam sinned, and as a result of his sin, because he was the first human, that through him, sin passed on to the human race. Therefore, we are all in Adam, the Bible says, and therefore all of us have sinned. The original sin is not speaking so much about his sin, but the fact that because sin and death came through him, all of us are born incapable of good, of true good. All of us are tainted by sin. As a result of that, out of that heart of sin, out of that nature of sin that's already broken, and that enmity with God, we by nature will commit sin. And every parent knows this. There is an inability and a totality of the effect of sin in our life. You strip us down into our constituent parts of our mind, our soul, our dreams, our will, whatever you want, and you will find that it is always coded in that sin. The result of that brings a heart that's in willful rejection. For some, that willful rejection of God is rather pretty and nice, and others is blatant and ugly, but it is a rejection of God as he has revealed himself, and we create for ourselves at the very best a God of our own image. And as a result, we are under God's wrath. Therefore, there is nothing that a person can do, nothing, nothing, a person can do to contribute in the slightest to being forgiven or saved. They have to look for the one who stands outside of sin and death who can bring both forgiveness of sin and in some way make them righteous before God. And that one is Christ. All right, so that's 
a basic, very quick sense of an orthodox sense of sin. According to the Catholic Church, this is where things begin to go astray. I've got a slide coming up, and I just, I'm afraid desperately that I missed it. Nope, we'll get there. <laughs> okay, according to the Roman Catholic Church, this is where it gets, you're not going to be opening your Bible or anything like this. We're just going to be talking about what they claim and state, all right? When dealing with sin from the Bible, it's very straightforward. All of us are under sin. All are sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous. None who do good. These are all just biblical statements out of the book of Romans. We are called ungodly. We are called unrighteous. We are called enemies of God. More than that, we are unable and unwilling to believe. That's, that's the reality. So when we talk to the unbeliever, sin is a dominating subject. You'd have to dominate that. That's the whole point, is that you are in desperate need of salvation. All are under sin. All have sinned. Without grasping how lost they truly are and how deserving of the wrath and judgment of God is, they will not need a solution. So in a sense, the idea of sin is very full and complex subject when you're talking as a believer to a non-Christian. But for the Christian, if you think about it, when I talk to you about sin, it's actually rather straightforward. It's rather simple. Because ultimately, in Jesus Christ, we have, not hope to have, we have full forgiveness. So yes, we sin. Yes, we we stumble. Yes, we fall. All of those things are true, and we are aware of that. But all of it, that as we battle it, is not sin that needs to be forgiven, but we battle a sin that has been forgiven. That in Christ, he died once for all. It's done. So from a human, I mean, a biblical perspective, when we're talking to the non-Christian, it gets pretty full because we need to help them see that not only do they commit sin, and that's what makes them a sinner, but the reason they commit sin is because they are a sinner. And so we're getting into all those complexities, but when we talk about it as a Christian, that though we acknowledge sin, we give thanks to God that in Christ we find forgiveness. This is very, very important. We confess sin to God in heaven, but even as we do so, we redo it understanding that it has been forgiven, that we're not to dwell on sin, but instead we are to pursue and dwell upon the great salvation granted already to us. Now compare that to the Roman Catholic Church. They talk about original sin. So do we. They actually talk about it properly and rightly. It's both Adam's first sin that we know about in Genesis 3 as well as the effect it has upon all of humanity. And this, they're correct. Therefore, though there is a natural goodness, they would say, in humanity, there is not a supernatural goodness. And therefore, need, they need someone to redeem them from sin. This sounds good, right? I'm okay with this at this point. This is because Adam and therefore the human race which came from him lost original justice or righteousness or what they would call sanctifying grace. Because Adam fell, he lost the sanctifying grace he once had and now he is in need of redemption. So that's what they talk about of original sin. Then they move into a new category and that's called actual sin. This is where things can get a little complex, so I need you to listen carefully. All of what I'm going to do is speak about here comes from the official catechism. This is not my sense. This is what the catechism teaches. Actual sin is any willful thought, desire, word, action, or omission forbidden by the law of God. Now, when they say the law of God, what they mean by that is primarily the Ten Commandments but also the commands to love God above all other things and to love your neighbor. Now, I want you to hear, though, a word that they, they state that is very, very important in all of this. It is willful, any willful thought. 
So now we have original sin that then brings us into this state of needing redemption, but then we have actual sin. How do you know when you do a sin? When have you actually sinned? When have you committed one? And the key word there is when you willfully violate what they say you're not allowed to violate. So this moves accidental, impulsive actions that are against God's law to something other than actual sin, which is convenient. This is also quite different from a biblical definition that would say that any personal lack of conformity to the moral character or desire of God is sin. Meaning, whether you mean to or not, if you fall short of what God is or who God is and what he calls you to do, ignorance is not an excuse. Any of that is sin. What I want you to note is the will is not in view here. The will of man is not being in view. All it's focused upon is focused upon the character and desire of God, whether you're in conformity with it or not. So when you are in conformity with God's will, that's not sin, but none of us are ever in conformity with God's will as a non-Christian. It's impossible. So what do we do then with this actual sin? It has, they say it has to be a willful act in violation to the commandments. Well, now they say, well, now that we've talked about actual sin, let's define that and let's enlarge it. And they see sin as divided into two. I'm curious how many of you as Catholics learned all of these things. Um, Sin is, actual sin is then divided into two categories, material sin and formal sin. All right, so original sin, that came from the beginning, tainted all of humanity. Actual sin is any willful act against God's commandments. And when you're looking at actual sin, you have to divide them into two more categories. They're either a material sin or a formal sin. Um, material sin is something, again, that's contrary to the divine law, which includes the Ten Commandments, but includes other things as well. To commit something that breaks one of the commandments, but you didn't know it, was a violation of the commandment, but that you didn't know that it was a uh, violation of the commandment, that makes it a material sin. Meaning, I'm trying to think of one that none of us... Well, we're pretty well taught on sin here. Um, <laughs> disobedient, disobedient to parents. It commands that you don't honor your mother and father, right? And so you violate that as a, a young person. But you weren't saying, you know what? I'm going to disobey my mom and dad. If you disobeyed your mom and dad and you says, I'm wanting to disobey my mom and dad. I plan on disobeying my mom and dad. That would be actual sin. But, but now, when we're talking about sin, if you violate the, ten, the commandment of honoring your mother father, but you do it just kind of accidentally, you, you didn't intend it, it just happened because you were kind of upset or whatever, um, or the classic excuse every parent gives, you're just a little tired. Um, now, you've entered into what's called material sin. You have done the things that makes sin, sin. But it's not a sin for you because it's not yet a formal sin. The formal sin is when you break a commandment and you know it. So as long as you don't know it's sin, you're good, in a sense. Um, You have not entered into formal sin yet. You've only done the material sin. So you've, and, and, and material sin is just simply the idea that you've done all the elements that require sin to be sin, you just didn't know it. And then what flips it on to formal sin is that you knew it. Here's a way you can uh, understand it. To take someone's property, but you honestly thought it was your property, would make, make it a material sin. Because it wasn't your property, but you honestly thought it was yours, it's a material sin. But to take that person's property, knowing it didn't belong to you, is now a formal sin. So though you commit a material sin at times, 
It doesn't become a formal or real sin until you do it with knowledge. But now, let's understand what happens if you actually commit a formal sin. Here's where it becomes complex even more. For the Catholic, sin works in one of two ways. A mortal sin or a venial sin. Now let me stop right now. Before you go any further, I want you to understand everything we're talking about, about formal sin, material sin, mortal sin, venial sin, we're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about the Christian, the Catholic Christian. The Catholic, who, uh, the person who's not a Catholic, they're just a sinner. Once you step into Catholicism, all of this becomes yours to keep straight. All of it. Your soul demands it. Your soul depends on it. You may not know it, care about it, think it, but this is what the official dogma of the Catholic Church says. This is what they put on your shoulders. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more. If you understood the level of anger that has been coursing through me for this week, you would be shocked. They hang the millstones around you and hide it under all of this fancy talk. But the one thing that they make clear to you as a good Catholic is that you commit sin all the time and you gotta deal with it. You gotta fix it. So when we talk about actual sin, what kind of sin did you commit? Well, an actual sin is committed as a mortal sin or a venial sin. Mortal sin is a specific type of sin that destroys the saving grace given by baptism. Let me say that again. The mortal sin is a specific kind of sin that destroys the saving grace that they would say came in baptism. The soul is no longer in a state of grace, but it's now dead again. Just as the first sin committed by Adam killed the spiritual life in him, they say that the mortal sin that a Catholic commits now kills spiritual life in the Catholic What I mean by that, if you're not following me, is that you're no longer saved or you're not a Christian. The moment you commit a mortal sin for a Catholic, you are outside. You have killed your soul again. It is dead before God. Now, understand that for a Catholic, and we'll get into this, Lord willing, next week, the salvation always begins at baptism, whether as a baby or as an adult. It doesn't matter. You get saved once you get baptized. Saved. You're, you, you get on the road to salvation. I can't even say saved as a once-for-all kind of thing. You get now stuck on this road, and now it's time to climb. So if the person committing a moral sin dies at that point of committing it, they go to hell. You're under God's condemnation. You're a child of wrath. You're dead in your sins again. And so the Catholic Church actually teaches that there are countless children of God in hell today because they had been baptized and therefore adopted into the household of God as children of God. Therefore, they were children of God, but they committed a mortal sin and died without proper deal, properly dealing with it, and so they go straight to hell. So what, are, what, what makes a mortal sin a mortal sin? Well, it's things like murder, including abortion, adultery, extramarital sex, hatred, drunkenness, and many more but also vaguer things such as sins against faith, such as doubting God or teaching and believing what the church calls heresy. So if you doubt God's word, as they say it is stated, you've committed a mortal sin. That's a lot more slippery, isn't it? You can say, well, I know I haven't killed anybody. 
unless you're going to take Jesus' word that says if you hate a person in your heart, you've committed murder. Then you're like, oh man, I'm dead. What about sins against love, such as showing a heart of ingratitude or being uncaring about showing acts of charity and kindness? Those are mortal sins. Breaking your oath, gluttony, theft, lying, or willfully missing, here's a big one, willfully missing mass or holy days. Get that into your mind. If a a Catholic chooses to skip mass so they can go fishing, they're dead in sin. At that point, they're dead. If not, eventually, they're dead in their sin. They're going to hell. And if they have a heart attack or they have a car accident, before they can get to the church to get this all fixed, they're doomed. So what makes a mortal sin a mortal sin? The catechism is up on the screen if you haven't figured that out. There are three conditions required to make it a mortal sin. It has to be an act of grave matter, serious, and it has to be done with full knowledge, and it has to be done deliberately. Those three elements, all three, have to be there for it to be a mortal sin. It has to be serious, it has to be done with full knowledge, and done deliberately. So how do you resolve this situation? Well, you have to make penance, and you have to make penance as directed by a priest, Now, the first way you do it, the first time, is always through baptism. As a baby or as an adult, if you become a Catholic and they finally baptize you, at that moment, everything you've done in the past is wiped away. And everything you do after you got baptized is on you. And you got to take care of it. Penance is a way to become re-justified. Get that word in your mind. You get justified all over again when you perform proper penance. I don't know where Grayson's sitting, but Grayson talked about this justification, this legal declaration by God that we are now righteous in Christ. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that covers us. And they say, no, that's not it. When you commit a mortal sin that's wiped away, you start back from scratch. But also remember for the Catholic that if they don't go to a priest for confession and penance, then they are no longer saved. They are now ungodly and under the wrath of God. Then you come into the venial sins. The venial sin is actions and thoughts of a lesser sort. A Catholic might commit what normally would be a mortal sin materially, but without fully understanding it, or without the intent to commit it. And that sort of sin doesn't kill your soul, it just wounds it, It makes you weak. And as the Catholic Church would say, if you do enough of them, then you're definitely going to end up committing mortal sins. So you have to take care of these sins so they don't end up leading you into spiritual death through mortal sins. Now what's interesting is trying to nail down exactly what is a venial sin. There are actions and attitudes that are a partial failure to act out of love or a partial ingratitude. See, if you you acted out of, not out of love, then it's a mortal sin, but it's only partially out of love, not out of love, then it's a venial. If you, if, I hope, I see some head shaking, that makes me happy. Um, so if you only are partially unthankful to God, not fully unthankful, then it's okay, it's a venial sin. But if you go totally in gratitude, then it's a mortal. How do you know that? I challenge any of you, tell me, when do you know, oh, I, ah, I slipped. It's total now. Yeah, let's get over it. I'm, I'm making light of it, but I shouldn't, and, and forgive me for that, because you have billions of people, or billion people or so in the world thinking this. So 
So examples of a partial failure to act out of love or a partial ingratitude, things like prejudice or arguing or being vulgar, these are examples. But if there is the overt intent to do these things, then they easily become mortal and you're no longer a Christian. Example, a teenage son is mad at his parents for some rule or discipline. That's common, right? And this is already now a venial sin because he's angry that his parents are disciplining him. And so he's not showing them proper honor, so he has now committed, at the very least, a venial sin. And let's say that in a fit of anger, he screams that he hates them and slams the door. But he didn't willfully do that. He, he did it just out of a fit of rage, and, and he stomps off. Then they, the priest would tell you, that's a venial sin, and here's what you got to do. But let's say that he's allowing that, simmer, uh, that anger to simmer and grow in his heart, and he decides he's going to hurt his mom and dad. He's going to show them what's what. And so the next time that he sees them and they, they say, have you cleaned your room? He looks at them and he says, with full intent to hurt them, I hate you. And walks away. He is now dead in sin. That is a mortal sin. So how do you resolve a venial sin? A mortal sin has to be done by penance. Well, now it becomes even more complex. I'm going to quote Thomas Aquinas. I say great in the sense that his influence, the great theologian, Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas, tells us that a venial sin does not mean we need a new infusion of fresh grace to forgive it. Meaning you don't have to become saved all over when you, like you do when you have a mortal sin. When you do a mortal sin, that sanctifying grace, that grace that sets you apart into life is gone. It's just erased. And you need a new, new infusion, picture a pouring into you of God's sanctifying grace to get you back saved. Okay, that's, you got to do that with a mortal. But when it's a venial sin, you don't need that new infusion but you do have to deal with this. Instead, you deal with venial sins through three different ways. Let me see. Yeah. The first is any act that confers, these are his words, sorry, they're his way of writing. Any act that confers the infusion of grace will forgive venial sins. So he says, the first way you deal with venial sins is find something that, an action that will confer grace. Even though you don't need it, if it confers grace, then it will also take care of venial sins. What are they? Well, it's receiving the Eucharist or performing the seven sacraments. So the Catholic Church has these seven sacraments. You can only do at max six of them because you either choose marriage or holy orders. But you do, they say that through the pr- proper performing of these, that you receive this constant infusion of grace into your life, and you get higher and higher in your justification. You start getting more saved. Now, at any point, up that ladder that you're doing, you commit a mortal sin, where do you go? Right back down and over here under the wrath of God, and now we got to start that whole thing again. It's evil. But if it's a venial sin, go to Mass so you can take the Eucharist and perform your sacraments. Or... You'll like this one. Any act done in detestation of sin will forgive venial sins. Any act that you show you hate this sin, then he gives you them. The recital of the confitior, the confitior, which is a penitential prayer. 
I'll say the other ones and then show you what that prayer is. You could do an act of contrition. You can beat your breast, but the, the, the way the Catholic Church tells you to do it, but you can do that. Or by saying the Lord's Prayer. If you were a Catholic and you went to confession and they said, you need to exhale Mary's, right? And then, then three Lord, uh, Lord prayers and then something else and out you go. You're, you're done. That's what they're doing. They're fixing your venial sins. If you come in there and say that you committed something that's a mortal sin, then they got other things they'll do for you for the penance so that you can get yourself back into salvation. So what is this um, confitior prayer? I'm still there. There we go. I confess to Almighty God... Before I go any further, let me ask you this. As I pray this, I want you to hear how central Jesus Christ is. My mediator before God. My sin bearer. My life giver. How central is Jesus Christ in this necessary prayer to get rid of sin. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. If that doesn't break your heart to the poor sinner who is burdened by the fact that they sinned and they need relief and they need to have hope and they need to have salvation and they need it now and they are given this and they're told each time they say, through my fault, you're going to strike your breast. Through my fault, through my most grievous fault, that'll do the trick. It's not an alternative. It's not just another little group. It's a gospel that damns because they don't even get the problem right. They stick the problem of sin on the Christian rather than on the non-Christian. That is a problem with the non-Christian, that they are under his wrath, and there's nothing they can do, but they find full, total, complete forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And they flip it. The third way you can get rid of venial sins is any act, including a movement toward the reverence of God, will conduce the remission of venial sins. What's that mean? Well, a bishop's blessing. So if you get around the bishop and he gives you a blessing, well, that's going to just kind of move you right along in your path. If you've ever wondered why they fill the St. Peter's Square and they do the various things when an archbishop is in town and, and all of a sudden the church is packed and you're like, what's with this? They're looking for blessings, They're looking for this stuff because they got to take care of all those venial sins that they don't even know they did, but they're going to have to pay. And so they got to get this stuff taken care of. So they're they're working the, the system, really. You can sprinkle yourself with holy water. You can have any sacramental anointing, or you can go and give prayer in a dedicated church. All right, so what have we learned? What makes this so evil is that there is never a time where a Catholic will ever be able to rightly, they may say it, but they can never rightly say that they're saved. That they have been saved from eternal death and into eternal life, not with absolute certainty. 
because they are in the process of being perpetually growing to be saved. You are not saved until you're in heaven. By doing this, then, the Roman Catholic Church makes you a slave, not to Christ, but to their institution. Because if you didn't know, there is no salvation found outside the mother church. And if you do not take these sacraments that only the Roman Catholic Church can rightly administer, there is no salvation. There's no way to gain the grace you need. If you, there, you're not in the Roman Catholic Church in good standing, then you can't go to a priest and deal with your mortal sin that has condemned you, according to them, to hell. And so now you become a slave to the institution rather than a slave to Christ. The salvation you seek is not found in and through Christ alone, but in the Catholic Church who dispenses out the grace of God for salvation through these various methods. And these methods, called sacraments, are the path on which a person is finally saved. However, when you hear the idea of being saved by a Catholic, it's not like what many of you picture. This is one of the hard things about talking with a Catholic is they use words like grace and justification and and sanctification, things like that, and we just assume we're talking the same language. We're not. The entire system of the Roman Catholic Church is one that traps a person into an endless cycle of personal efforts assigned to them by the church. These are designed to keep adding to their idea of justification until you die. If you say, have I done enough? They'll say, you got a little bit more. However, if you commit a mortal sin, then there are so many ways you can do that. Then everything you've done is lost and you're right back into the state of condemnation. You're the etch-a-sketch or the magic pad. Remember who was a kid and you take them and it's right back to square one. You have to get saved again. And you better do it at the right church because nothing else is going to do it. If you commit venial sins, then these must be paid for by acts of contrition. And any that are not paid for in this way will be paid for after you die in purgatory, which is another vile doctrine. So they don't even guarantee that you're saved once you make it to death. Now you die... And I'm not joking, you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years in purgatory to purge your sins that didn't get dealt with here. And I say thousands by thousands because I had the, I I read an entire book on the devotion to Mary. And if you do certain rituals and, and go to certain places on certain holy days and recite this prayer, because these are from apparitions or appearances of the Virgin Mary, supposedly, to these various people, and therefore they had not then declared, and it's enshrined in the Catholic Church, that if you pray like this, that this apparition tells you to pray on these days, and you say it this many times, that you can work off 10,000 years in purgatory. How long am I in there for? And yet, I bet you, if you're a Catholic in this room, that's not how you're thinking. Your salvation doesn't end until you have paid for every single sin you did. It's rather sadly humorous to see how the Catholic is warned. In light of everything I said, it's, it's, it really is sad, but funny how the Catholic is then warned about what is called scrupulosity. How do you like that word? Which means to be unusually concerned over every sin that you may have committed. Listen to how the Catholic who is burdened by the possible possibility of committing a mortal sin is counseled. This is uh, from Catholic.com. 
So it's a priest writing on how he would counsel a person who feels heavily burdened that they may have committed a mortal sin. Everything I've said up to here now comes to bear. The priest would say many materially mortal sins are formally venal. Doesn't that do good things for your soul? You're in there weeping because you think I've committed a mortal sin. He says, my son, many mortal sins, materially mortal sins are formally venal. Although we have the capacity to control our passions, the fact is that even a highly responsible person is not fully free when under the sway of his passions. A material mortal sin is formally mortal only if there is sufficient freedom. Go and sin no more. What they're trying to say is, they're actually dealing with Martin Luther here. Because Martin Luther, as a priest, recognized the seriousness of God, and if sin must be paid for, then the only way he can deal with it is if he confesses it all. So he would spend endless hours in the confession box, boring the pants off other priests who are saying, dude, that's nothing. And what you have is a poor person in the Catholic Church who is now coming under great concern that they may have committed a mortal sin. So they're scrupulously looking at their, their life, looking at every thought and every action and every motive, and they're bound up, all tied up. And the thing they're trying to say is, look, at the worst, you committed a venial sin, but you didn't intend to do that. It wasn't deliberate, so it wasn't a mortal sin. Yes, it would have been a mortal sin if you intended to and you did it deliberately. But I'm not convinced you did, so it's a a venial sin. Just go out there, keep coming to church, keep taking the Eucharist, you'll be fine. Your past may be littered with materially mortal sins that are not formally mortal. One cannot deny the damage, they would say, that such acts caused, but it is a tremendous relief for the scrupulous person to know that they're not going to hell for them. No, just purgatory. Which doesn't exist. All right, so let me, because I don't know if I'll have time to do it here, and I actually have nine minutes. I'm doing pretty good here. What makes... Purgatory so wicked is that it is a place like hell where your sins are burned away. And so, you're a Catholic. So, in Matthew 7, it says, Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did I not you know, prophesy? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not perform many miracles? All of these in your name. Did I not do it? And he says... I never knew you depart from me, you who do iniquity. Now, has the day of judgment come yet? Yes, no. Yes, no. Please tell me no. But thank you. I mean, I, well, I got a few heads going up, and I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, really? We need to talk more about the wrath of God here then. No, it hasn't come. You will know you're in the judgment. These people, many will say to me on that day that hasn't yet come. So for 2,000 years, the people who died outside of Christ in Matthew have been where? In hell. And they now are raised back up on the final day for their final judgment, and they're arguing with him saying, you made a mistake. Look at the things we did. And he says, I never knew you. And they're sent away into the lake of fire. That's purgatory, beloved. That's what you're, you've got untold billions of Catholics who have died without truly ever finding the salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. And they're sitting there in purgatory in absolute agony. And they're thinking, eventually, I'll get out. And you wonder how many millions of years will it take for them to click I'm not getting out. So what's going on here? This whole thing gets into the convoluted way that the Catholic Church deals with sin. Why? 
because they created this entire system to deal with sin. Listen, because Jesus is not enough. There's no true payment for sin found in Christ. And so now they end up falling into this whole discussion of material versus formal sinning, meaning that if you commit what is defined as a mortal sin, but you didn't really mean to do it, then it's only, it, though it is a mortal sin, it doesn't affect you like a mortal sin. Instead, it's a venial sin, so don't worry about that because it's taken care of through attending Mass or sprinkling yourself with some holy water. Of course that makes sense. That's easy, peasy, great. Or you could t- give them the gospel, that declares that Christ died once for all, that he died in our place, bearing our sin away, rose again, defeating death, and that if you place your faith in him and his work alone, you have full forgiveness now. The problem with the Catholic Church, though, is that who gets to decide if you're doing a mortal sin? What's it really done in accident? Who of you knows your heart that well? Even if you thought you didn't, but you did, and you find out later word, well, later word, afterward, you're condemned. It's done. Too late. Too late. You're out. So though the Roman Catholic Church acknowledges the problem to be sin, They stumble on how sin destroys and rules the heart of mankind. For the Catholic, I'm just quoting various, these are direct quotes from the Catechism, okay? For the Catholic, sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is a failure to genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. But it is also said that it wounds, direct quote, wounds the nature of man. Remember that phrase, wounds the nature of man. Behind all of this is the thought that the will of mankind is free. So the idea is that because of sin, your nature is wounded, but your will is free. The Bible doesn't agree with that. The Bible is very clear with regard to sin that is defined in two ways. It's a power that rules the heart of man and kind and stains all aspects of persons of the person. I want you to notice, compared to the wounding of your nature, if I wound you, depending on how bad, are you walking out of here? Unless you're a wimp, right? If I, if I break your nose, you might be bleeding and you might be crying. But you're not dead. I capped you in the head with my gun. No, I'm not carrying a gun. Um, you're dead. Right? The, the, the nature is only wounded by sin. And the heart, the will of man is free. Compare that to Ephesians. And you were dead in, in the realm of your transgressions, not by doing them, in. This is the world you walked in. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you formally, because he's talking to Christians, what a, what a glorious passage compared to what the Catholic Church says, in which you formally walked according to the course of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature not wounded, but children of wrath, even as a rest. That's what you formally were, beloved, if you're in Christ. So the Bible describes all of humanity as under sin. As a result, the second aspect comes into play. As a result of this power, all of humanity commits sin. So 
the Bible will say, there's none righteous, none who seek for God, none who does good, no fear of God in them, dead in their sin, under the judgment of God, given over to our sin. The Bible makes it clear that as individuals were enslaved, a key one in contradiction to the catechism is that the nature of the person is not merely wounded, but is killed by sin. We are dead in our sins. Sin dominates a person. Another key contradiction that the catechism focuses is that the catechism focuses more upon the acts of sin rather than the heart of man. Here's, here's the, here are the words of Jesus. For out of the heart come the evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. All of that's flowing out of the heart of man. They're not what corrupt the heart. The heart is what corrupts our actions. Finally, the desire by the Roman Catholic Church to divide sins into two groups, mortal and venial, falls short. In Romans chapter 1, we don't have time, but you have heard this from me countless times. Romans 1, 18 down. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of, the, of, of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on to say that God has revealed himself both in nature as we see his power working and also in our hearts that because he has made uh, himself known to all of humanity. So much so that he says, so they are without excuse. But wanting to think of themselves as wise, they became foolish and they pursued things and they gave thanks to the creature rather than the creator. And all of this says the wrath of God is coming down. The wrath of God is flowing down. It doesn't matter if it's a mortal sin or a venial sin. I don't care what you call it. You want to call it a white lie, it's putting you in hell unless you are safe in Christ. What's fascinating is in Romans 1, the rest of that uh, chapter, he lists all sorts of sins. The worst of it is an unthankful heart to sins of sexual homosexuality, to other types of sexual sins. But then it will add things like greed or envy. These are what America's built on. Deceit and boasting and even being disobedient to parents. It condemns those who give approval to those who do those things, even if they don't do them themselves. We would call that today just being tolerant, being an LGBTQ plus ally. I don't personally, no, 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 I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, but hey, if they want to do it. That's up to them. Well done. You're, you're found in Romans 1 where the wrath of God is flowing. The Bible doesn't try to break it down into this or that. It's just sin. So to summarize, the Roman Catholic Church does not acknowledge the problem that mankind faces, which is sin. Instead, it weakens that, categorizes it in such a way that it does not fit well with what the Bible would say. But though the description of sin is weak, it's still present. However, when they present the problem of sin, it is the solution to the presence and power of sin that is where the Roman Catholic Church does the most damage, and they preach an actual false gospel. And it brings nothing but false hope. But the hope of the gospel is that through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, alone, there is life and forgiveness of sin for all time. The Bible states that through Christ, one act of sacrificial death on the cross, that all sin is resolved in the life of the believer forever. No person will ever, if you think this, beloved, you need to grow in your theology no person will ever add one tiny drop to their salvation. You are as saved as you ever will be right now. And you say, but I do so much folly. I do so much sin. Welcome to the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. God does not look at you and say, be righteous God says Christ was righteous on your behalf. 
you're free. It begins and ends in Jesus Christ. It is this solution then, by God's grace, next week we will look at, as the Lord wills, as we then examine, how does the Roman Catholic Church solve sin? Let's pray. Holy Father, I do pray that in some small way this was helpful. That we can begin to see that we have been fully equipped to bring the gospel to bear that we will stop any foolish talk that we say where we think they might be saved or something else, that, that we understand that these gospels abound in our nation and in our homes and family and friends, and we need to talk to them. We need to do it with kindness. We need to do it with grace and patience, but we need to talk. Father, open up our mouths to speak. Let us all see the glory of what it means to be safe in Jesus Christ, our sin-bearer. Let us find rest. Cause the Spirit to open our eyes to see the fullness of what the uh, the blessings are that are ours that Grayson so wonderfully taught. That they're free and they're found only because of Jesus. But now as we prepare to go home, I pray that we would be sober-minded as we consider these things. It will awaken our hearts to pray all the more for those we have trapped in the Catholic system. We ask for your mercy upon them. In your son's name, amen.